following two quotations from preachingtoday.com, they put an entirely different spin on the word sinner than we are accustomed to. First of all, well, first quotation, every congregation is a congregation of sinners. And if that weren't bad enough, each has a sinner for a pastor. Second one is equally biting. The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. In these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility, which is to keep the community attentive to God. Now, this is not a confession. I'm not making a confession this morning of any wrongdoing. But I want you to keep that understanding of the word sinner in your mind as you listen to the reading of Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was, was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or that woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Sinners are Jesus' highest priority. Sinners are nothing more than people who sin. That includes every one of us. None of us can truthfully claim that we have never sinned. The Bible said if any of us tried to do that, we would be liars and strangers to the truth. When the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of God's glory, it makes the whole world a level playing field. Therefore, the term sinner is an inclusive one. A sinner is like a sheep that, that is lost in the open country. A sinner is lost because whatever sins they have committed have alienated them from God. Alienated from them from the shepherd. And no matter how hard they try, they can never make their way back to the shepherd or back to the safety of his sheep pen. The shepherd is the one who must reach out for them from wherever, and search for them from wherever they are, wherever they happen to be. 
in the open country, in the bars, in the brothels, in the, in the traps of their addictions, in the entertainment centers of the world, in their workplaces, in their homes, and yes, even in their churches. The shepherd is intent on finding them wherever they are and saving them from their sin as well as from themselves. Now, Jesus left nothing misunderstood when he said this in Luke chapter 19 and verse 9. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And I have added in italics my own addition to that, especially those who are lost and don't even know that they're lost. Because that is sometimes the case. Like the group, this group of tourists who, while they were vacationing in Iceland, discovered that someone of their group was missing. And so they split up and they started searching diligently for this missing person uh, before one of the women realized that they were the ones, in fact, that was being searched for. She was in the group. They thought she was lost, and she didn't even know it. Sinners are Jesus' highest priority. Jesus was always searching for sinners in the same way that a shepherd is always searching for his lost sheep. The Holy Spirit draws people, draws sinners to wherever Jesus is because he knows that they desperately need to hear a word that Jesus has to say to them. Now, this desperation in, in their souls is not to hear a word of condemnation, but to hear a word of acceptance, a word of gracious acceptance. And so, look at these two verses. Look at these two verses in our text. What they have to say about lost people. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. I believe it was the Holy Spirit drawing them. They were, yes, drawing near, but based on the work that the Holy Spirit does in people's hearts and lives, we have to conclude that it, is, it was he who was drawing them to where Jesus was. Because Jesus had something to say to them that they needed to hear him say to them. So whenever sinners show up in church, we who are already in church must be okay with that. Because Jesus said that it is not those who are whole who need a doctor, but those who are sick. A doctor's offices are awful places to be sometimes. Isn't that the case? Now, yes, you go there to get help, but they're awful places for these reasons, I'm told. Not because I've experienced them. Well, yes, I have. First, you have no idea how long you're going to be there. That is true. Second, you have no control over anything that happens there. You are at the mercy of the doctor and his receptionist and whoever else is there. Third, the glass window where the receptionist sits is closed and you can't see what is going on behind the doors. That is intriguing. Fourth, someone comes in after you, after you have arrived, but they get called into the office before you. That always annoys me. Always does. <laughs> I am there waiting for like 30 minutes or whatever, and somebody else comes in and they get called in right. That annoys me to no end. Fifth, the music is monotonous. The television is on the same silly program that you never watch, or the magazine that you picked up is one that you read way back. They're annoying places to be. But we go to those places, the doctor's offices, because we 
need a doctor. Now notice the contrast between Jesus' treatment of sinners and the religious people's treatment of sinners. Our verse says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now isn't it interesting that on the one hand, Jesus receives or welcomes sinners and eats with them, while the religious people condemn him for receiving sinners and eating with them. That is the contrast that we see. By accepting or welcoming sinners and eating with them, Jesus displays that he always has a, a place in his heart for sinners. That's why he earned the nickname Friend of Sinners. Friend of Sinners. He told a man who had made his living by tax fraud, come down from the tree of your pride because today I want to have dinner at your house. He told a woman whom they caught in the act of adultery, I am not here to condemn you. Go and sin no more. He told the man who would betray him, friend, you can still change your mind about what you want to do. He said to a man who denied him three times, well, he didn't actually say anything. He just gave him a look. And that look was enough to fill him with remorse. For those nailing him to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said to a man who hand over fist was arresting anyone who carried the name of Christ. He said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks, meaning by trying to hurt me, Saul, you're only ending up hurting yourself. So sinners have always had a place in God's heart. They're always important to Jesus because he came to seek and save them. Secondly, being lost is very risky. I'm sure you know that. Being lost is very risky. Now, there's a drama in these two parables that Jesus told. And the drama in these parables is built on the tension of attempting to find something that was lost, either a lost sheep or a lost coin. Now, if you've ever lost anything from keys to TV remotes to pocketbooks to engagement rings, you know the stress that that involves and the effort that you put in to try to find them. And you also know the relief that you feel when you finally find it. Now it is the same in this parable with the shepherd and uh, the parable with the sheep and the coin. As the shepherd gathers his sheep at the end of the day, he discovers that one of them is missing. Now the shepherd didn't take a second to decide that he would in fact leave the 99 in the open country so that he could search for the missing sheep. Because, you see, this sheep that was in the open country, it needed to be found. Otherwise, it could end up freezing to death in weather like this, because it would be, suffer from ex overexposure to the cold. It could break its neck by falling over some rocky precipice. Or it could be eaten by hungry wolves. The shepherd knows this. The riskiness of a sheep being lost in the open country is matched only by the risk that the shepherd takes in going to find it. 
First of all, he risks losing the 99 that he left. He risks losing his own life in the process of searching for this one sheep that is lost in the open country where so many things could happen to it. Now, anyone who doubts the heart of God need look no further than this parable. Because Jesus is using this parable of a lost sheep to make something evident regarding our discipleship as Christians. If you're a Christian, I think this is a point that Jesus is making. If you're a Christian, isolation is a dangerous thing. Isolation should be avoided at all costs by every Christian. You cannot be a Christian and live your life in isolation. It is too risky. Just as the sheep perishes when it is isolated from the flock, and just as a piece of, of live coal is extinguished when it is removed from the furnace, so will you if you separate yourself from your church family. You become overexposed in the open country to a foreign culture that is too willing to squeeze you into its mold. You become exposed to hungry wolves and hungry philosophies and hungry things that are out there that are willing to eat you for their lunch. You risk self-destructing by falling to your debts. That is how risky it is to self-isolate. There are some who self-isolate from their church, gone several Sundays, showing up now and then, I believe that they are candidates for being devoured in the open country. Being devoured by their enemy, the devil, who is way too cunning and way too powerful for them. That is why I believe that the New Testament places such an emphasis on the, what Stan calls the ministry of one another's. That is why these one another's are built into Christian discipleship. They are there to protect us from the risks of isolation. Here are just a few of them. James chapter 5 and verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. John chapter 13 and verse 34. Love one another. Romans 12 and verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Romans 5 and verse 14, 15 and verse 14, care for, I'm sorry, instruct one another. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 25, care for one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, comfort one another and agree with one another. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. Galatians 6 and verse 2, Bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Ephesians 5:21. Submit to one another. Colossians 3:16. Teach and admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 11. Encourage one another and build one another up. And finally, Hebrews 10:24. Spur one another on to love and good works. This ministry of one another is built into our discipleship for our safety and for our growth in Christ-likeness. And we rob ourselves of this ministry 
when we self-isolate. Now, I don't, I don't necessarily listen to pop music, but um, I was preparing this sermon and looking for an illustration, and I found this one, all right? Um, you may have heard the song, Someone to Love. It's a pop song. I, I don't know it. Not that listening to pop songs is wrong. I just don't. That's just me. But I'm told that in this song, Someone to Love, that Jeff Shapiro, in fact, I listened to it. All right, so Jeff Shapiro and Beth McKenzie are the two young adult college graduates that the song is about. And they're living their professional lives. They're very successful. But at the end of each workday, they go home and they live very isolated, lonely lives. Now, they're living separately. They don't know each other. The song says that there's something wrong with this particular picture, and they both recognize it, but neither of them um, can describe it. And then the song comes up with a solution to the problem that they're having. The problem to their isolation, it says, is that they both need someone to love. Now, the song really correctly assesses and addresses what the issue is. The issue is that they are not meant to live in isolation. But the solution that the song gives is really off the mark because the cure for isolation is not necessarily in a physical relationship with another person. The cure to relationship is in koinonia, or what the Bible calls fellowship. Fellowship with one another as we share the life of Christ together. So it is risky to self-isolate. Here's our third point. Being found makes heaven celebrate. The shepherd throws a party when he finds a sheep. And he calls his neighbor to celebrate with him. Notice that this is really a picture of how heaven celebrates when a sinner actually is found and rescued from their sins. Jesus says this, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not need to repent. So whenever a sinner is found, heaven throws a party. Being found and being, I'm sorry, being found and repenting is really the same thing. Repenting means changing your mind about being lost. And the first step to repenting and to being found is to decide that you won't stay lost. Now, it seems very simple, doesn't it? But the first step to repenting or to being found if you're lost is to decide that you won't stay lost. You have to make that decision. You decide that. You decide that you will allow yourself to be found by Jesus and to be saved by him. In repenting, you are expressing genuine remorse for the sins that have caused you to be alienated from God. And you allow Jesus to save you and to embrace you as his child. When that happens, heaven couldn't be happier. There is celebration. There is joy. There is partying. This is what keeps Jesus associating with sinners. Because he loves to throw a party to celebrate when a sinner repents of his sin and is found. 
Now let's look at the second parable, the parable of the lost silver coin or drachma. I'm told that this was equal to a denarius which was worth a day's wage. And as with many things that are lost, the search begins with the certainty that it must be here somewhere. That's what you tell yourself. You know, it must be here. I must have dropped it. I must have misplaced it. It must be here. And so there's a careful search. You, you sweep your house. You turn furniture over. You're careful to search for this thing that is lost until you find it. And then we can hear the relief. There it is. When you discover it, when you find it. Jesus says that there is, joy, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that is found, that repents. Now, at the most basic level, these two parables are making the same point that searching for what is lost takes effort. But the effort is really worth it when you finally find it. I believe that there are two lessons here for both the sinner as well as the disciple. Here they are. If you are a sinner, and that's not a pejorative term either. It is just the term for a person who sins. If you are a sinner, you should know that God is diligently searching for you and he will not stop searching for you until he finds you and saves you. Secondly, if you are a disciple, you should know that God expects you not to self-isolate, but to join with him in the search for bringing lost people back to the shepherd. But Jesus provides a clear example for us to follow both of these things. Here's the bottom line of our message this morning. Searching for lost sheep and missing coins exemplifies God's heart for sinners. It's a picture not just there as a story, it is there to illustrate to us what God's heart is for sinners. There are three things I want you to um, use as you apply this message to yourselves this morning. First one is this. Let Jesus find you wherever you are. Now I'm sure that you're fascinated like me when you find out, maybe you're looking at a movie or something, you see a movie or a clip or a video of a criminal who commits a crime and then leaves evidence of their crime behind, if you've ever seen that, you know that the reason that they're doing that is because they want to be found. They're tired of, they, they perhaps can't help themselves, but they commit a crime and leave evidence that links them to the crime because they're tired of what they're doing and they want to be found. I believe that the same mentality should exist with those this morning who are lost wherever they are. They need to be tired, tired of being lost and willing to be found. If that is you this morning, I want to say to you, change your mind about being lost. It begins with you making a decision. Change your mind about being lost. Decide that you want to be found. Decide, you're not, decide that you're not going to stay lost but that you will allow Jesus to find you wherever you are. Because, you see, there's a party waiting to happen in heaven if you make that decision to not stay lost. 
likely there's any person this morning, whether here or viewing online, that that speaks of, who is willing to say, I will not stay lost. I've been lost long enough. I want Jesus Christ to find me, to save me. If that is you, I challenge you to make your decision this morning and allow Jesus to save you. Secondly, I want to challenge you to partner with Jesus in seeking to find the lost. I'm sure you have discovered, as I have, that we Christians are all guilty of becoming so focused on the life that we now have, now that we have been found by Jesus, that we have no concern for those who are still lost. That is one of the terrible mistakes that we make as Christians. Jesus finds us in our lostness, in our sins. He forgives us. He cleans us up. He gives us a new life. He allows us to dress up in fine clothes and come to church and worship as we did this morning. And then we forget that there are people who are still lost. I want to submit to you this morning that your discipleship and mine should be done not merely to get more knowledge and more information about God. That is good. It is always good to know more about God and what he requires of us and how we should live. We should always be doing that, but we should not limit our discipleship to that. I believe that our discipleship should sharpen us with the skills of knowing how to bring lost people to Christ. Christianity is about one sinner telling another sinner how to let Jesus save them as we allowed him to save us. Let there be some parties in heaven this week in celebration of the fact that we make a decision to bring lost people, and we do in fact bring lost people to Christ. Thirdly and finally, I want to challenge you to choose koinonia over isolation. Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship, coming together as the body of Christ. Now, we have been sold a lie from the pit of hell, and that lie tells us that we are better alone. I'm here to sit this morning that we are better together. We are better together. We are better together. I will say it until you say amen. We are better together. <laughs> we are better together. Amen. Yes. I believe that we were made for community. We were made for community. Christine Paul wrote a book that says that it is in community that we flourish and become our best selves, and I agree with her. Jesus said that the defining characteristic of the Christian is that they love others. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you are Christians, if you love one another. And I don't believe that we can love one another in isolation, can we? We can't. So let us emulate the example that New, Christian, New Testament Christians did. They met together. They fellowshiped with one another. They ate bread together in their homes. Let us emulate that example. Let us learn how to eat together, which we do a lot here. I love that. Looking for another one soon. Let us learn, learn together. Be discipled together. That's what discipleship is all about. Let us pray together. Let us hurt together. Let us serve together. Let us share together. 
Let us laugh together. Let us crack jokes even on the, on, on the snow. <laughs> All right? Let us, let, us, let us be together. Because that's what keeps us protected. Isolation is not good for us, but koinonia is. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for demonstrating that you have a heart for lost people. God, I was one of those sheep that were lost. You found me, as you did all of us who are here today. God, maybe there's one person here who still hasn't been found, who still hasn't made that decision to let Jesus find them. God, I pray that that person today, whoever they are, will make that decision, whether they're here in person or joining us virtually. We pray that there will be celebration in heaven today over one person who comes to know Jesus. And God, we ask that you'd also send us away with the challenge to join you in the search for others who have not yet been found. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.